Stand by while NCLA cuts through the noise to signal abuse of administrative power. This is Administrative Static with Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchione. Welcome back to Administrative Static. John, I, I think this might be a first for us at, uh, uh, at the podcast. We're going to be talk about an article in the New Republic. Uh, the New Republic happens to be our neighbors across the hallway here at the, at the New Civil Liberties uh, Alliance, although they're never there. <laughs> so exactly. They must all work from home. Uh, but uh, in any event, uh, there's an article that appeared uh, just this past week uh, by Matt Ford, the title of the article, Qualified Immunity Faces an Existential Threat at the Supreme Court, a judicial doctrine that has denied justice to an untold number of plaintiffs may be founded on a centuries-old Scrivener's error. But you're missing at the very top. It's called whoopsie. <laughs> I do see that. Yes, it does say whoopsie. And the, and the, and the whoopsie in question is uh, qualified immunity is a doctrine that, that, the, that the Supreme Court uh, invented essentially to uh, to, to exempt certain kinds of, of officers from what would otherwise be perfectly legitimate lawsuits against them for damages for violating uh, people's constitutional rights. And there's a, there's a federal statute that, uh, that Congress passed. It's uh, Section 1983 is, uh, is it's uh, uh, 18 USC Section 1983. I guess that's why, uh, why uh, folks refer to it as, uh, um, that's not why, but it, folks refer to it as the Ku Klux Klan Act, because at the time, the idea was that this could be used to go after some state authorities who might have been, uh, shall we say, moonlighting uh, as, as members of the Ku Klux Klan or might be violating people's yeah. rights or not sufficiently enforcing. Right. It was the Enforcement Act uh, for the Civil Enforcement Act and Ku Klux Klan Act for civil rights. Precisely. Uh, and the, what's interesting here, what the whoopsie is, is that the original uh, language passed by Congress said that every person who under color of any statute, ordinance, regulation, custom, or usage of any state or territory or the District of Columbia subjects or causes to be subjected any citizen of the United States or other person within the jurisdiction thereof to the deprivation of any rights, privileges, or immunities secured by the Constitution shall, and this is the important part, any law uh, any such law, statute, ordinance, regulation, custom, or usage of the state to the contrary, notwithstanding, then it finishes, be liable to the party injured in an action at law, suit in equity, or other proper proceeding for redress. Well, the whoopsie is that that language that I flagged, that any such law, statute, ordinance, regulation, custom, or usage of the state to the contrary, notwithstanding, somehow didn't make it from the, the bill that passed the Congress and was signed by the president into the United States Code when they revised the code, they left out that clause. And so when folks have been going back and looking at Section 1983 without that language in there, courts have said, well, you know, this isn't an absolute, uh, and they've invented these, these exceptions like qualified immunity. Uh, and the way that qualified immunity often works is that, uh, you know, there has to be precedent showing that the action that the officer took 
uh, was was already clearly established to be a violation of someone's civil liberties, and only then would you you know not have qualified immunity uh, for for having violated someone's civil liberties. Well, if you have that language in there, John, any such law, statute, ordinance, regulation, customer usage of the state to the contrary, notwithstanding, it's sort of hard to a, to read that exception into that. Right, and particularly they said that this was at common law. Statutes are allowed to abrogate common law. And the argument always was, well, they didn't do it because they know how to do it. You know how they do it? Notwithstanding clauses. <laughs> and so, so what gets me is I do think we should say um, that this was, in the, this was found uh, in, a, in an article in the California Law Review by Alexander Reinhardt. And you really don't see articles that, that are this um, explosive. I, I just read it. I understand this case where Judge Willett mentioned this uh, came out a while ago, but I completely missed it. And when I read that they had actually excised out the notwithstanding clause and then it had been quoted in Supreme Court uh, cases for many, many years, that this is the thing. This is the part of the article that I was really struck by, which is the revised statute's first edition was somewhat notorious for its errors which prompted repeated updates and eventually a wholesale replacement. Here's the quote. Although the revised statutes were supplemented and corrected over time until the first United States Code was published in 1926, the revisers error in omitting the notwithstanding clause from the reported version of the Civil Rights Act of 1871 was never corrected. I mean, that is just incredible that this is being that this is coming out now i mean it is it is remarkable and particularly it's coming out when textualist and originalist um uh jurisprudence is so strong in the supreme court it's it's really it's it, it's really um like like finding a, a new work of plato or something like a dime, that for, a diamond in the rough exactly you know? for 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 uh textualist and originalist this is this is this is like uh unbelievable it, it is uh, you know one question i would have though is uh is this really brand new information in the following sense when they when the congress readopted or you know accepted some of these revised code things it did so without this language in there so even though they might not have known that it was in there it seems like it might that some of the updates might have accidentally adopted the current language. Now that doesn't mean that you don't go back and look at that older language and say, "Wait a minute, there was a you know there was a mistake here." Uh, but I wonder if if some defenders of qualified immunity might try to hang their hat on that. So, in other words, since this this law has been revised, since they didn't carry it forward, it's been superseded. Possibly, that that would be uh, you know that would but, be one concern that I would have as to why this might not be as earth shattering as, you know, as folks, uh, as it otherwise, you know, might be. Let's think about that for a second. So sure. I, that's, I hadn't thought of that, but here's what I think. I think when they revise the statutes, they do it, as I recall, by saying line such and such is struck and we add such and such. And you've seen those revised, um, you know, amendments to bills and they strike out and they add. And then that becomes the law and, and it's done. If they were revising and striking in the Congress without the actual law in front of them, I would say that that mistake should not be recognized because they never struck those words. In order for it, it, I would be arguing that the amendment actually has to have Congress strike those words and Congress didn't strike them. Hmm. And so even though it was adopted, 
I would say that the congressional adoption did not strike them in the form that Congress and Senate always do when they revise statutes. I take that point. Absolutely. That, that the, the other thing that, that I would suggest is, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that uh, if suppose that the clause was struck, it doesn't necessarily mean that the clause was struck because they no longer wanted the notwithstanding clause to apply. It could have been struck or if it had been struck, it could have been struck because they didn't think it was necessary that they thought, look, the language already says uh, without the notwithstanding clause, every person, uh, you know, can, can sue shall be shall be liable. Uh, or, you know, I was, I was, uh, I was shortening that a little bit too much, but anyway, shall you take that out and it's shall be liable. That's pretty clear. Uh, but if you, for any reason, think it's not clear enough and you need to go back and see what the law said before, and you see the notwithstanding clause, then I would say that the argument would be, well, they, they didn't say shall be liable in a way that led you to create exceptions. They said shall be liable. And they took out the notwithstanding clause because it didn't, they didn't need it. They, they were making this as expansive as possible, in, in other words, and, from but, a liability perspective. But I also think there's another juridical reason that it could be very important is that qualified immunity has been under attack by people like us. This is in TNR. You know, it's not it's not a conservative originalist uh, uh publication. People don't like qualified immunity because it often leads to just awful, awful results. Sure. And and it is not really based in text or, or history. It's something they made up because they thought that there'd be too much litigation against these people who enforce the laws. I mean, let's be honest, that's what they were doing. And um, but the Supreme Court doesn't like to walk back things. It doesn't like to say we were wrong. Saying that the that the government printing office is wrong, they'd be happy to do that. <laughs> so right. for the people who want to get rid of qualified immunity, but but do have a a, a view of um, of stare decisis that this is a statute that Congress is well aware of it. That Congress has known what it was all the time. Um, that to have this emerge gives people who want to get rid of qualified immunity under the statute. Um, uh, I think a hook to do so without going through a big to do about stare decisis or saying we were wrong. They don't have to do that. So that may get you a vote or two, I think. I think that's right. I also wanted to correct myself before we get to the end of the episode. I think I said 18 U.S. Code 1983. It's not. It's 42 U.S. Code Section 1983. This is a civil action for deprivation of rights. 18 U.S.C. is, is the criminal code. So I, I misspoke on that. But um but yeah, I, I mean, I think you're right, John. I think that this could be something that that gives the court an excuse to uh, to revisit the question that they haven't had before. They a lot of times they just deny certain these cases. They just don't don't take them. I think this is an issue they're going to have to take. Now, not necessarily in the case. There's a particular case uh, that that this article is talking about uh, that's going to be uh, before the court, uh, I guess, and, in, in September at the long and conference. It, and it's not outcome determinative. So basically, a prisoner had a, a ceiling fall on him and they didn't give him medical attention and his his medical condition got worse. He, he's alive, though. And what what the court found was it was just negligence. It really wasn't an uh, uh, abrogation of his rights. But they also found qualified immunity. So if the court takes this one and reverses, it doesn't doesn't help this guy. It doesn't change the outcome it doesn't, of the case. So yeah. I I think for that reason, you don't really it's not the right vehicle. 
So, but, but it's a very interesting case. And I think that um, it's really something that they've brought it and brought this to attention to the courts and, and good for uh, Professor Reinhardt. And, and look for this argument in a case to be brought to you soon by the New Civil Liberties Law. Welcome back to Administrative Static. Uh, I guess this is the, the uh, time for, for for breaking new ground here at, at the podcast, John, because uh, we're going to say something nice about the American Bar Association. I'm not sure we've done that before on the show. Uh, it's it's, it's going to be a rare, a rare, well, maybe not a rare occurrence in the future. I think they might have finally had it. <laughs> well, there's a, this is a day of firsts anyway for, for, for us. The, the new president of the American Bar Association, uh, I think she... I think she took office earlier this month or, or certainly this summer uh, is a Mary Smith. And, and despite the name uh, Mary Smith is the first native American female president of the American bar association. Uh, but John, that doesn't seem to be what she's focusing on in her tenure here as the head of the bar association. Instead uh, she seems to be focusing on of all things, free speech. Yes. Where, and where, where has the bar association been in this fight? Right. And and in law schools, in law schools in particular. And and this this, you know, they for accreditation and other things, the ABA is a big deal. And um, the incidents that we've discussed before that happened to Judge Duncan at Stanford and has happened at Yale, um, where they shout down speakers and they and intimidate them physically um, and and could even lead to danger. Um, Make them run a gauntlet when they exactly come out of a room or something. And, you know. We've heard a little lip service from people that, oh, that's terrible, but we this is actual action. This is really action coming to the fore. And um, w- what what she said is, is and, and what the ABA is now going to do is look at, at law schools and say, listen, you've got to have free speech policies that basically take away the heckler's veto. Yeah, they're, they're going to propose guidelines to address disruptive conduct on campus, which seems like a good idea to have the American Bar Association uh, do that. And and Smith uh, is quoted in this uh, as saying that free speech is a core principle of democracy, which I don't think is controversial by any stretch, but it's not the kind of things we've heard from bar leaders uh, recently. And so it's refreshing to hear that. And maybe the ABA done made a mistake here, uh, John, because they, <laughs> they've elected someone who graduated from the University of Chicago mm-hmm. School of Law, uh, where they actually do take uh, First Amendment very seriously. And, and the Chicago principles have been one of the, uh, the things that has uh, been pushing back on the, the crackdown of, of free speech that that was not a Chicago law school specific thing, but the Chicago principles were a university of Chicago wide 
set of principles that were adopted to to sort of reestablish the primacy of free speech on campus. Yeah, and I also we we looked her up a little bit because we were kind of shocked. And uh, <laughs> her undergrad degree is also in like computer science or something. Yeah, it's mathematics not, and computer it's, science. It's not the humanities <laughs> where you know there's all this harmful speech talk and it. So so she's maybe maybe be, been immunized by taking real courses that lawyers don't take. <laughs> but in any event, um, she says I don't know what direction this proposal will ultimately take, but we're able to set those guidelines in a number of areas and then base law school accreditation on those guidelines, which is putting teeth into it. I really think it's putting teeth into it because I, it is it is heartening that the entire profession, I think, of practicing attorneys were shocked. We, we haven't been on campus in a long time um, as, as, as students, and I think everyone was shocked and I, I think it's really hit the profession hard. And I'm well, when you see the video, right, yeah. I mean, you, you, you sort of don't have to be on campus when you see the video because you're like, oh, my God, what's going on here? Right. And everywhere these practicing lawyers appear, you can't do this in court. You can't do this in a boardroom. You can't a mediation, a mediation. <laughs> yeah, you, you can't do this. So anyone who's been been the, the practice of law is its own it disciplines in its own way. And so I think that some of this la la land stuff we have at the law schools uh, is has has broken out now out of the law schools. And they're saying, wait, that's going to have consequences. Um, And they mentioned Judge Ho not hiring Yale or Stanford law students. But I think that the, the import of that was that they're saying, wait, where are these people going to be good? Where are people trained? Never mind clerking for Judge Ho. Do I want them here? Do I want anyone to be taught that this is the way lawyers approach things? And I, the ABA is saying no. And that uh, I haven't heard such good news in a very long time. Yeah, it's 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 great uh, to hear them say that. I, I do wonder, and this is not mentioned at all, and I don't think Mary Smith has has commented on this. Uh, but but one thing that might be operating in the background here is the breach that happened at the Supreme Court around the Dobbs decision and the fact that, that that decision was leaked. And everyone thinks that it was a law clerk who leaked the advanced copy of the decision. And everyone thinks that it was a, a, a liberal law clerk. I shouldn't say everyone, but the consensus seems to think it was a liberal law clerk who, who leaked it and a liberal law clerk who attended Yale Law School. So there's, you know, there, there is this as you said, John, this concern that this ethos is leaking into the profession. And if we don't find a way of having respect for differing views and, and, and restoring some civil discourse, which is something that's important to the new Civil Liberties Alliance, we have our, our Ginsburg Scalia fellows every summer that we bring in to try to, to get nine uh, relatively conservative law students and nine relatively liberal law students to, to talk to each other about these issues across, uh, across the ideological divide. Uh, and, and if we don't have more of that happening in the law schools and respect for free speech, then the profession is going to turn in a very nasty direction. Yeah, there's no there's no question that's the case. And it also well, we were just we were just in our previous segment, we were talking about this new thing that was found um, by this professor on the Civil Rights Act. Well, that kind of free inquiry. And going around and doing things nobody's thought of doing before. You know what? I'll go look at what was actually passed by Congress. I'll go dig into the stacks and do it, and then I'll talk about it. Well, what if you found something bad for civil rights, right? In that kind of atmosphere, he wouldn't have said anything about it. Um, and, and I think so for both the scholarship and the freedom to go look and then say what you found, uh, it's very important. And I, and I think it was it, – it, it, we, 
I certainly have felt that it was declining at Georgetown as well. Um, and I, I think it's bears, uh, quoting, uh, uh, Smith because, um, she also, she's, she's also quoted in this article saying, I think free speech is an essential element and core principle in American democracy spelled correctly there. Um, it allows people to offer differing opinions, to protest without violence, to express their opinions and have a marketplace of ideas. And it is that freedom that underlies the history of our country. That used to be platitude. Everyone would say that, but that the bar, that the head of the bar um, thinks that as her first thing she should do is do this and address this uh, really shows that it is a problem and that um, it, it has now percolated not just from the people being shouted down, but lots of other people. Let me be a little bit of a contrarian on, on one point here, which is I'm not sure this should be an element of ABA uh, accreditation for law schools. And the reason I say that is I'm not sure there should be ABA accreditation of well, law schools. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so, you know, I, I mean, as long as we have accreditation of law schools, maybe having this as an element, uh, you know, makes, makes sense. But, uh, you know, I'd really rather see the ABA not be involved at all uh, in blessing the law schools, because I think that's part of how we've gotten to where we've gotten is that the ABA has had way too much involvement in, in the law schools. That's true. But how did it get it? The ABA used to be universally respected. How did it get to be universally respected by having um, non-ideological straight rules that everyone in the profession knew about? It was it was the uh, slow politicization, I'd say, of the ABA, primarily because of its review, uh, its review of judges, I think, really, really did that. It took on that job and that job became so political that it may have infected the whole the whole thing. But if if they got the accreditation when they were non-controversial and just a, a professional uh, benchmark and then they kept it as they changed into something else. And that's what happened to that institution. But I will say this, if they're if they're not they're not going to be thrown out tomorrow, then this is the sort of thing this this is going back to, hey, what what do we need as a rule for all lawyers to follow? Don't shout down the other guy. Right. And so um, maybe it's I know some of our listeners will think, well, of course, this is nothing. But to have the the ABA do this and not the Federalist Society, not uh, somebody who has been on the on the business end of one of these uh, heckler veto things, but who who. Uh, right. This isn't Judge Duncan. talking Right. Here. Exactly. This is, this is Mary Smith. Right. I, I think she's I think she, it, it's a good proposal. And so where does it stand? Is it going to go through or is it? Well, I think I think that's it's currently being worked on and they, they don't have a I guess they haven't proposed the guidelines yet for people to start taking pot shots at. So we'll see what happens uh, when they do that. But but I will say, you know, they, there, are, there are other actions here that have already been taken. So the ABA Journal published an article by our friend Josh Blackman saying that the ABA needs ideological diversity to ensure its future. Uh, that, that, that terrific article. Uh, and and, and a, on a more personal note. Uh, the ABA reached out to me uh, this week and invited me to participate in something called the Crossroads Caucus, Advancing Professionalism and Diverse Viewpoints. And I said, oh, I'm not an ABA member. I'm, you know, right. I'm, I, I'm not, uh, I shouldn't belong to one of your caucuses. And they said, no, 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 no. We know. We know you're not a member. We need some diverse voices in, in this caucus. And so we would invite you to join uh, this caucus on on advancing professionalism and diverse viewpoints because we we need some 
outside sort of voices well, that's in good there. News. I didn't know that. That's that's kind of shocking because I, what happened in the ABA is they took political positions on abortion and stuff. I dropped out for that sort of that sort of thing. I I didn't want my name associated with it. But that is really heartening. We don't because they know that maybe they've uh, uh, there's been some uh, leaky leakage of uh, of certain people out of the ABA. Yeah, I, I think there's been some leakage, and but I think that that at least at least a group. I don't know if I I don't know for sure we can say the board of the ABA, but at least uh, a, a group uh, has uh, you know has cared about this. The 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 immediate past president of the ABA, Deborah Enix Ross, invited Eugene Meyer to speak to their board of governors uh, in in D.C. Uh, I know that, and so now you have this from Mary Smith. It's a. It seems like a good trajectory. Well, I, I, I think so too. We'll yeah. see what happens when these guidelines come out. See if uh, you see if uh, uh, if saner heads prevail, or if or if people start taking pot shots at them. Right. Well. Well. We'll see. But it's nice start. Nice start to her presidency. Nice. Nice start to her presidency. Nice. Uh, n- n- nice job of speaking up for free speech. She's absolutely right in what she says. And so let, now let's see what the ABA is going to do about it. Thanks for being with us on Administrative Static.